sermon text for this morning comes from Hebrews 10, uh, verses 1 to 18. Hear the word of the Lord. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Plant your blessed word, your holy promises in our hearts, O oh Father. Help us to embrace the simple yet staggering truth that the work is done. Help us to live in the freedom that you are calling us into. Call us today. Grip us today. Liberate us today. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. If you pay close attention to children, you will often learn profound truths about yourself. I think that's the experience of many new parents. You observe a behavior in your child, maybe a tantrum or a refusal to get the rest that they really need. 
or their obsession with a lesser gift when a greater gift is being ignored that's right in front of their faces. And it clicks for you. I do the exact same thing. I just do it in a more grown-up way. The littlest ones among us often hold up a mirror to the ways that we function and live. We're really not that different after all. Now, in the midst of the ever-growing ocean of parenting resources, uh, developmental psychologists have, have observed that one of the most significant factors in a child's social and emotional thriving is very simply experiencing a deep sense of security with their parents. When children experience their parents as a loving, responsive, dependable, comforting presence, when they know that they're seen, safe, and valued, something tremendous happens in children. They develop an abiding sense of security, a sense of safety that they can actually carry out of their home with them into the world. That parental relationship is like an anchor. It's a haven within the big, wide, unpredictable world. And that's exactly what a child needs in order to explore courageously, take risks, develop a healthy sense of self, communicate honestly and effectively, regulate their emotions, and open themselves up in vulnerability and trust to other relationships. Now, children who lack that enveloping security tend to experience all manner of things, uh, anxiety or hypervigilance. They may have difficulty expressing or regulating their internal responses and external behaviors. They may pick up all kinds of coping mechanisms in their lives to deal with the fundamental sense that they're not really safe in the world. But when a child learns the world, knowing that he's secure in love, when she knows who she is and how she's regarded and cared for by her parents, that security can set a trajectory for growth, for flourishing, for a beautiful life. Now, why in the world am I talking so much about parenting and childhood developmental psychology? We're in Hebrews. It's because we're not all that different. Do you see? Even here, the way our children work, our children are holding up a mirror to us. In order to live in the world fully, abundantly, beautifully, each of us, no matter how old you are, needs an abiding sense of security. Just like children... We need to know that we're seen and safe and valued and not merely by our parents. I don't just mean that our experiences of parental security or lack thereof have ripple effects up to today. I think that's true. And that part of your life may indeed be worth exploring. But what I mean is that at an existential level, at a spiritual level, at a cosmic level, we need a deep security in order to truly flourish. In the big, wide, unpredictable universe, we need the security of knowing who we are, how we're regarded, and that we're beloved. 
Otherwise, our life will grow up into a thousand different coping mechanisms for merely surviving the world and for calming our core conviction that we're unsafe no matter where we go. Do you know what I'm talking about? Hear this. The central message of Christianity, the good news of Jesus, speaks directly to the child inside of every one of us. It speaks directly to the need and longing for security in love that exists within every human heart. Because it tells us that the beloved son of the father has definitively accomplished everything necessary to secure your status as the father's beloved child. That's the basic claim of our passage in Hebrews 10. It is finished. The work is done. So I want to simply meditate together on the goodness of that good news. And what it would look like, what it would feel like to truly live inside of that good news. What would it feel like? What would the experience of your life be? If you inhabited, were cloaked in, covered in, saturated in, that kind of good news. So on the way, we're going to consider two things. Very simple, the sacrifice and the security. First, the sacrifice. Remember, the book of Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians in the first generation of the church. It's talking to people who lived the shift from worship centered around the Jerusalem temple and the rituals of the Old Testament to worship centered around the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it's calling them. While the temple's still standing, mind you, it's calling them in the midst of social and economic and familial and cultural pressure to keep holding on to Jesus and resist the pull back into the old way of relating to God. Now, as we've moved through this book, we've seen that the strategy of Hebrews is to set Jesus side by side with the Old Testament system and systematically explore how Jesus is better every single step of the way, how Jesus fulfills, how he follows and fills up and exceeds the pattern of everything that came before him. The undergirding conviction of the author of Hebrews is that if at a heart level you grasp who Jesus really is and are grasped by what he's actually done, your heart simply won't let you walk away. Your heart won't let you cling to the shadow when you truly apprehend and are apprehended by the substance you've been offered in Jesus. So in the past few chapters, we've seen Hebrews building this cumulative case that Jesus is a better high priest who's entered a more glorious heavenly temple who intercedes for you in the very presence of God who gives you a deeper purity and who's established for you a grander covenant relationship with a more marvelous and permanent inheritance. We've seen that. And now in chapter 10, the focus turns to the way Jesus won all those blessings for you. By offering himself as a better sacrifice on your behalf. 
In the Old Testament, God gave Israel an elaborate instructional system for relating to him. And at the center of that liturgical choreography was animal sacrifice. God made his home with Israel in the tabernacle and temple. He set the glory of his presence in their very midst. But in order for Israel to continue enjoying the blessing of life in God's presence, God had to provide a way to deal with their ever-present disobedience, their often failing worship, their imperfect love. So he gave them the gift of the sacrificial system. A flawless animal would represent the worshiper receive the death judgment that their sin deserved, and shed its blood, offer its very life to cleanse away the corrupting stain of the worshiper's sin and restore them into communion with God. It was a renewing journey from death into life. But it had to happen constantly. There were morning and evening sacrifices every single day. If individually you wanted to approach God at the temple, sacrifice was non-negotiable. And every year, the Day of Atonement involved blood being shed to purify the entire nation. And that's precisely why the author of Hebrews says that the Old Testament way of relating to God only has a shadow of the good things to come, not the true form of the realities. The sacrificial system could do what it was designed to do. The sacrificial system could teach about the consequences of sin and the necessity of forgiveness and purification and God's readiness to provide graciously for our restoration, but it could not make someone irreversibly complete. It couldn't definitively cleanse you, solve your sin problem, and settle your status so that no stain would ever Mark or corrupt you again. How do you know? Well, verse 2 says, if those sacrifices could actually solve your sin problem, if they could actually cleanse you, wouldn't they have stopped? If they were truly effective, wouldn't once have been enough? The author of Hebrews is showing us that the very fact that those sacrifices could never end is undeniable proof that they were not designed to be God's final answer for you. They are incapable of conclusively making you complete. They are a step on the path. They are not the final destination. And verse 4 punctuates it with a, an exclamation mark. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, if you remember back in chapter 9, we heard that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But now the author's saying that the blood of animals can't ultimately provide the kind of cleansing that we so desperately need. Why not? Because only a fully human life can truly represent, cover, and cleanse our flawed human life. And that is exactly what God has provided for us in Jesus. That's why the author quotes Psalm 40. And in the words of King David, the author of Hebrews, you know what happens? He hears 
the voice of Jesus. It's fascinating. David knew that God's deepest pleasure didn't come through the bare ritual of animal sacrifices, but in a human life consecrated, devoted to walking in humble faith, worship, and love according to God's word. So King David in the Psalms offers the body that God gave him back to the Lord. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now he's probably referring to the commands for Israel's kings in Deuteronomy. And David devotes himself as a living kind of sacrifice. Do you hear it there? A living sacrifice, which is exactly what the animal rituals were intended to communicate and cultivate in the first place. But King Jesus, King David's greater son, is able to say David's words in a way that David never dreamed possible. The father prepared a body for Jesus when he sent him into the world in the miracle of Christmas, the miracle of the incarnation. And Jesus responded in worship by embracing, fulfilling, and obeying the entirety of God's will and living the blemishless human life of worshipful love that every one of us owes toward God but never could deliver. Jesus is able to do what animal sacrifices never could because he's the true human being who lived the perfectly human life in our place. As the flawless man, he alone is worthy to stand in our place at the cross and take the death our sin truly deserved. As the flawless man, he is able to cover us in the glory of his perfect obedience to God. And I want, to, I want us to, to pause and consider what those two things mean. Sometimes, and maybe this is you, sometimes Christians tend to think that the gift of Jesus merely gets us forgiveness for our failures. So if we think of our lives in accounting terms, my sin has incurred a debt. Jesus died to pay my debt, and now I'm back at even. When you conceive of Jesus' work in that way, though, you can begin to live as if Jesus dealt with the negative of God's anger at your sin. But if you're going to get God's positive pleasure, his abundant delight, his love, his approval, it's up to you. Your obedience is the key. Let me confess to you, and some of you who've lived your life with me know, I spent my entire childhood functionally living this way. Jesus took my punishment at the cross, so I don't have to. He got me back to even, but winning God's favor is still completely up to me. It's dependent on my performance, my goodness. And do you know what that translated to in the life of a child? In the life of a growing man, a teenager, a young adult, confidence that God didn't hate me and zero confidence that he actually delighted in me. Let me tell you, that is an utterly miserable, anxiety-inducing, fundamentally insecure way to live the Christian life. Always 
teetering on the cusp of feeling like a spectacular disappointment. I have no doubt that many people who run away from the Christian church are running away from that. You can't live under it. It's soul crushing. It's deadly. And it falls woefully short of the vision of Jesus that Hebrews is offering to us right here. The whole consideration of Psalm 40 emphasizes not merely that Jesus died the death you should have died, but that he lived the life you should have lived. He filled up the life of obedience and love and worship all the way to the brim. And he doesn't just take away the stain of your failures. He gives you the record, the glory of his perfection. That's why verse 10 says we've been sanctified by Jesus' offering. We've been made holy, given the status of being absolutely, undeniably worthy of standing and living before the face of God now and forever. You haven't just been moved off some cosmic naughty list. You've been made fit for and welcomed into the glory of God's very presence. The gospel, friends, does not start at Jesus' death. He didn't wipe away our sin and leave the burden of gaining God's pleasure firmly on your shoulders. The gospel starts with Jesus' life. He covers you with and credits to you his impeccable record of wholehearted human worship so that when the Father looks at you, he looks at you through the perfection of the sun and beams at you with all the fiery delight that Jesus' life merits. The author of Hebrews goes on to say something simple yet staggering. After Jesus offered his single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. I love that. It's like the ancient version of a mic drop. Why did he sit down? Because there's nothing left to do. The work is done. Jesus cried out, it is finished from the cross. And he, when he rose from the dead and ascended into the presence of God the Father, he sat down. Every other priest in Israel's history was constantly on his feet. Standing to serve, that's the repeated phrase for the ministers and priests, standing to serve, standing to serve. You shall stand and serve. Why? Because day after day and year over year, the exact same sacrifices had to be offered over and over and over again. And while we may think of someone working all the time as a sign of their strength, that's one of the pathologies of the American imagination. When a priest does it, it's a sign of weakness. It's a sign of the ineffectiveness of what they're doing. It's a sign of the inadequacy of their sacrifice. But Jesus offered the single sacrifice of himself once and for all to definitively and completely cleanse and sanctify you forever. And he sat down because the work is done. Verse 4 says that Israel's cycle of sacrifices was a constant reminder of sins. The fact that the rituals never stopped meant that every Israelite had a perpetual reminder of the persistent problem that their sin posed for their life with God. 
But verse 18 culminates and says, where there's forgiveness of sin, there's no offering anymore. The old system is obsolete. The cycle is broken. And instead of there being a never-ending reminder of sin, God says something marvelous. I will remember their sin no more. Jesus sitting down means there's no unfinished business left in heaven for you. Nothing that you or anyone else can add or contribute to alter the way that God sees, regards, or delights in you. Everything that was required to secure your status with God, always and forever, has been accomplished in Jesus. Hear this. If Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, if his work for you is done, and he's now sitting down in heaven, representing you in all of his completeness and perfection, then God will never love and accept you more than he loves and accepts you right now. It gets better. Because he will never love and accept you less than he loves and accepts Jesus. You hear that? He will never love you more. He will never accept you more than he loves and accepts you right now. And he will never love and accept you less than he loves and accepts Jesus. And just in case that weren't glorious enough. Hebrews reminds us that Jesus' place at the right hand of God is a royal position. It's a place of cosmic, kingly authority. And one day, Jesus' enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. The serpent will be crushed under the heel of the promised son. They will be a footstool for his feet. Not only has God responded in love to provide everything you need to be sanctified and secure in his presence, he also guarantees that he will respond in love to the suffering of his children. He'll deal with the evil that corrupts his world and resurrect this cosmos so that it's the home and haven of unbroken joy that he created it to be. One day, the security that we currently experience in Jesus by faith will become a security that marks every part of existence and fills up the entire world. That's a sacrifice. Now I want to talk about the security that the sacrifice brings. Let's talk about the security. The main point of this passage is that Jesus' sacrifice once and for all makes us holy, makes us clean, makes us complete in the eyes of God. And I want us to just reflect together. What would our experience of the world be like? What would it feel like if we internalized and truly believed that good news. What possibilities for joy and peace and equilibrium and stability and growth would open up in our lives if we made our home inside the security of God's irreversible, undiminishable declaration of delight over us? Entrusting our whole selves to the existential safety of his perfectly responsive, attuned, abundant love to us in the finished work of Jesus. What would it be like? 
your life would be suffused with an abiding confidence that the highest authority in heaven or on earth beholds you with pleasure and holds you firmly in his heart. Wherever you went, you'd carry with you a deep sense of your unchangeable belovedness, your unstainable forgiveness. Like a child who can't stop hearing a father's joyful affirmation of gladness and love, your ears would be ringing with the voice of God's delight toward you in Jesus. And you know what would happen? You'd finally be able to rest from your frenetic attempts to manufacture your own fleeting security. At Trinity, we often talk about idolatry and idols. The created things like power, success, approval, money, relationships, sex, that we give our worship to, that we devote our lives to, in order to try and create meaning, status, and a sense of value in ourselves apart from God. Just like children adopt coping mechanisms to feel safe in the world when they don't enjoy the security they need from their parents, we develop strategies for coping in the world as well. In one sense, we can think of idols as the coping mechanisms. Idols are the coping mechanisms that we all run to in, in our attempts to manage our deep existential insecurity apart from God. We develop techniques and strategies and habitual ways of living that are aimed at, obsessed with getting that thing we need, that thing we believe will anchor our lives and justify our existence and prove we matter and give us the enveloping sense of cosmic security that our hearts keep on aching for. But when you belong to Jesus, when you grab hold of his finished work for you and begin to taste the security in love that you have with your heavenly father, you can finally know who you are. What a blessing. You can finally, certainly and irreversibly, know who you are in the world. You can stop merely coping through your idols and efforts and start resting, living, thriving in a security that you didn't earn and can't lose. But friends, our idols aren't the only way we cope with our insecurity. It's entirely possible to have a relationship with God and yet still live as if the work's not done. As if your security isn't really secure. As if your status is still an open question and it's your responsibility to prove anew every single day that you really can be lovable to God. Friends, a tragic number of professing Christians move through the world this way. Their sense of God's approval isn't rooted in the finished work of Jesus. It's rooted in their most recent obedience or failure. It's rooted in the intensity of their most recent emotional experience of God. It's rooted in the steadfastness of their spiritual disciplines. Whenever something good happens, 
They assume that God is smiling on them and rewarding them for their obedience. The flip side, oh, whenever something bad happens, they're racking their brains to figure out where they failed. Where have I disappointed God and brought this providential punishment upon myself? What are they doing? Ultimately, they're living like a child who's never certain of a father's love. Like a child trying to predict and protect themselves from an unpredictable parent, from a volatile parent. They're moving through the world, always trying to manage and maintain the father's attitude toward them. And some of us feel that compulsion, don't we? That religious insecurity that's never resting and always working to attain a sense of belovedness and safety with God. Some of us feel that compulsion, frankly, because that's how we learned God from the beginning. What do I mean? There are certain traditions and ways of inhabiting the Christian life that are predicated upon revivalistic recommitment and reconversion. Every church service is ordered toward this climactic emotional moment where people see that they haven't been living the Christian life rightly. They feel the weight of their guilt. They resolve to do better and they prayerfully commit to God. This time I mean it. Ah, I won't fail you like I did before. Oh, just accept me one more time. This time I'll get it right. Maybe that hits close to home for some of you. Maybe that's how you learned God. But I want you to recognize what's going on there. That entire rhythm of relating to God is built upon anxiety. It always creates the question, if I'm not doing everything Right. Do I really belong to God in the first place? Do you know that you know that you've trusted Jesus enough for him to wipe you clean? If the goal of every gathering and every instance of worship is simply to convince you to recommit yourself to believing more, praying more, serving more, obeying more, being more for God. You always have to create the crisis first. Revivalism turns. Its engine is built on manufacturing doubt and insecurity with God in order to create that reconversion experience. Do you see? Frankly, as long as we're being honest, in one utterly cynical sense, the easiest way to keep people coming back to a church is to make sure that they never really feel safe with God. To make sure that they always believe that it's their next act of devotion that will prove God ought to love me. That'll, that'll keep people coming. And if that's how you first learned to relate to God, let, let's be honest, the impulses toward insecurity are going to run deep. Your religious imagination was formed in never-ending cycles of guilt and catharsis 
inadequacy and release, that takes time to unwind. The rhythms of anxiety and crisis have to be rewound and reformed with rhythms of authentic grace. Hear this. Take heart. Jesus is enough for you. And the work is done. Your status is secure. He sat down in heaven. Your life is not an open question. You can live in the security of certain gracious love rather than the anxious toil of managing God's attitude toward you. There's an intense irony in religious ways of trying to manufacture security with God. What happens? We tend to gauge our acceptance with God on our growth in Christian maturity and virtue. Here's the irony. The only way to truly grow in maturity and virtue is to first know that you're accepted in Jesus. If you're always looking at your obedience to determine your acceptability, you'll live in a fearful insecurity that makes authentic growth utterly impossible. Virtue, maturity, true, from the heart obedience, they grow in the soil of deep security with Jesus. Here's what I mean. If you measure your acceptance with God by the fierceness of your love for him, your love will always be inhibited by fear. How do you truly love a God that you're always afraid is going to reject you this time? But if you know that he's accepted you in Jesus, your love will blossom and deepen in the joy and gratitude that comes from your security. If you measure your status with God by your humility, you'll never truly become humble. Why? You can't afford to really be honest with yourself and others about all your inadequacies if you're building your status on your presentability and performance. You can't do it. You can't afford to. It's too costly. But if you know that your status is settled in the perfect work of Jesus, you can actually let go of your reputation Management. You can evaluate yourself with candor and honesty. You can experience a humility that bubbles up from your security. If you gauge your belovedness by your ability to resist those temptations out there, the insecurity of your life will end up pushing you deeper into your besetting idols as you try to self-medicate and find relief from your constant anxiety, you will run to other things to numb the fear of your life with God. Only when you're utterly convinced that you possess and are possessed by a deeper, more abiding, more satisfying joy in Jesus, will you even have the power to consistently say no to the temptations and behaviors that call out to you. If you determine God's attitude toward you based on how well you've prioritized communion with him through scripture and prayer, 
you will end up repulsed by the thought of spending time with God precisely because it reminds you of how unstable your life in his presence truly feels. I can't tell you how many people have told me over the years that they just can't bear to read their Bibles because all they hear is the sound of their inadequacy and failure. But if you know that God's unwavering pleasure is always and eternally yours, communion with the lover of your soul will be a solace, a comfort, a balm, a joy, not a burden. Scripture and prayer will begin to function like a magnet for your heart. It will pull you in so you can hear again the voice of the one who loves you. When you know that you're safe with God in Jesus, you can become the kind of person who diffuses hard situations with peace rather than igniting them with reactivity and anxiety because you're not fundamentally worried that your whole life is at stake every moment of every day. You can become the kind of person who carries gentle confidence and unassuming courage with you wherever you go, taking risks in faith because you know that what is most important is never at risk. The only risks you can take are the lesser risks because your life is hid with Christ and God. You can become the kind of person who compellingly and lovingly speaks about Jesus to others precisely because their responses and thoughts toward you are not your coping mechanism to create your personal sense of security. You can become the kind of person who slows down and is truly present and attuned to others in compassion and love because you don't have to manufacture your status and always be the center of your own attention all the time. When you know God's fatherly gaze is upon you in grace, you can take your eyes off of yourself. There's always a set of eyes upon you. They don't have to be yours. You can become the kind of person who perseveres in the faith. Clinging to Jesus, even amid hardship, in the glad conviction that he is joyfully holding on to you first. Do you see? Hebrews says that by a single offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And it's so important to get the order right. He has definitively perfected and made complete those that he is continually purifying and transforming. And it's precisely by resting your life in the security of Jesus' finished work that we can begin to taste the transformative power of the gospel in our lives. Virtue grows in the soil of security. And this meal right here is a gift from the Father to his children to nurture your security in his love. The table of the Lord is not an opportunity to obsess over your failures. 
It's not the site of self-flagellation. It's not where you come to God and say, oh, accept me one more time. I won't fail the same way again. No. The continual sacrifices were an ever-present reminder of sin. But when Jesus laid down his feast, he said, do this in remembrance of me. Do you hear that? This is not a reminder of the staying power of your sin. It is a memorial of the completed work of Jesus. So that you this day and always can remember that God remembers your sin no more. And there is life and security to be found in those waters. Let's pray.